Father, we pray that you would cause us increasingly to believe that eternal pleasures are at your right hand. Lord, would you give us hearts that are meditating on your word in the night. And we do pray that by your word, you would enable us to see the world as you intend it to be seen. We pray that you would use the word to inform the way that we understand ourselves and our identity. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us how you act in the world, the kind of thing that you do. We pray that you'd make us people who are eager for you to get all the glory, those who anticipate your goodness overflowing again. And Lord, help us to live for your kingdom. Help us to give everything that we are and to leverage all that we have for the gospel, for the making of disciples, as Christ builds his church. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. I would invite you to open uh, this morning to Exodus chapter 2. And we will be looking at this chapter. And uh, we will see here the very things that I have just asked the Lord to do in us. We will see how God means for his people to see the world. How God means for his people to understand themselves in terms of our identity, how we're to identify ourselves, and we'll see the way that the Lord acts in the world. And as we, as we think about Exodus chapter 2, let me just say a word about the whole book of Exodus. Uh, as you may know, there are 40 chapters to this book, and from Exodus 1 through 19, uh, Moses relates how Israel was brought out of Egypt, out to Mount Sinai. So the first 13 chapters of the book, they're actually in Egypt. And then from chapters 14 through 19, they're on the way to Mount Sinai. And then the rest of the book, and really not only just Exodus 19 through 40, but also the book of Leviticus and the first 10 chapters of Numbers, the people of Israel are encamped at Mount Sinai. And so what happens in this book is in the first 19 chapters, the Lord delivers his people from physical slavery, and they're enslaved to Pharaoh, and he brings them out to Mount Sinai, and he teaches them how, to, how they're to serve him. So there's almost a kind of freedom from one kind of slavery that they may, might be slaves of righteousness that, that we see at work here in, the, in just the broad outline of this book. These first two chapters, we looked at Exodus 1, the last time I was in the pulpit, we're looking at Exodus chapter 2 today. These first two chapters introduce us to the setting of the Exodus and in this chapter in particular uh, to the character of Moses. So if you would look with me at Exodus chapter 2 and in verses 1 through 10 we get the birth of Moses. So Exodus 2, 1 tells us that a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Uh, Moses is going to descend from this couple. Their names are going to be given to us over in Exodus chapter 6. But this is, this is really setting us up for the way that later in the Pentateuch, the Lord will relate how he's going to take the Levites for himself. And he's going to 
uh, make the Levites those who serve him at the tabernacle. And the fact that Moses has a Levite father and a Levite mother tells us that he is uniquely qualified to serve the Lord in the way that he will, that we'll see him serve the Lord throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. And then verse 2 says, the woman conceived and bore a son. And it's interesting, that may seem like a a little out-of-the-way phrase, that this Levite woman conceived, but uh, this is the last time in in all of the Pentateuch that we we will read this particular phrase. There are a lot of instances of women conceiving in Genesis, 16 or 18 of them. And this is the last time, and it's, it's almost as though Moses, you know, he has shown us how, um, how Eve conceived, and then Sarah conceived, and then uh, Rebecca conceived, and, and Rachel and Leah, and, the, mid, and the, uh, the, the handmaidens, they conceived, and now Moses' mother conceives, and it's, it's as though it places Moses as this last major figure in the Pentateuch, and, and really that's the case. Moses will be the key figure for the rest of these first five books of the Bible. The woman conceived and bore a son, and then the next words read, and when she saw that he was a fine child. And I want to draw your attention to two things here. The first is when she saw. Again and again in this chapter, we're going to read this kind of phrase, when he saw, when uh, the, the daughter of Pharaoh saw. There's an emphasis on people seeing things in this chapter. And what the mother of Moses sees, uh, it, the, the Hebrew word here is just tov, when she saw that he was good. And, and it, it almost is reminiscent of the creation account. God saw that it was good. And Moses' mother sees that the boy is good. And here's what I think is, is being shown to us. What's being shown to us is that Moses' mother sees the world the way that God sees the world. Moses' mother is not thinking in worldly terms. In, in, the, in the broader context, we saw in Exodus 1 that Pharaoh has issued this decree that all the male children of Israel are to die. So if we think in worldly terms, the birth of a male child is dangerous. We might think, oh, this creates a moral, a moral problem for us because I have a command from the king, and if I, if I repudiate or defy that decree of the king, I'm jeopardizing my safety. I might be inviting the king's wrath. And that's not the way that Moses' mother is thinking. Moses' mother sees that the child is good. She's thinking the way that God thinks. Children are a blessing from the Lord. The child, the, the New Testament says that uh, Moses' parents saw that he was beautiful. It's a good thing for a child to be born. And when we were in Exodus 1, we saw the way that God blessed those midwives, those Hebrew midwives who defied the order of Pharaoh. And it's remarkable how at the end of Exodus 1, God is using these women, these midwives, we're told their names in Exodus 1.15, Shifra and Puah, and it's interesting that I I forgot to mention this when we were in Exodus 1, we get the names of these two Hebrew midwives and no one knows the name of the Egyptian king. Nobody knows the name of the Pharaoh. And and scholars, they they searched 
the annals of history. They, they do all that they can to try to identify the Pharaoh. And it's as though his name has just been wiped off the map. There is no resolving that question of who this particular Pharaoh was. But we know the names of these women who feared God. And now, in the same way that the, these women, the midwives, feared God and defied the king in Exodus 1, now the mother of Moses fears God sees the world the way that God sees the world. And she's going to defy the king right along with those midwives. She saw that he was a fine child. He was, she saw that he was good. And she hid him three months. And uh, I wonder if you can imagine what it would be like to have a three-month-old child that you're trying to he keep hidden from a king. And perhaps there are periodic searches uh, as the king tries to exterminate the male children of Israel, and you have this delicate, helpless um, person on your hands who cannot sustain his own life, and perhaps at three months he's becoming more noisy. So the next verse tells us, verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him, and the ESV renders this a basket, but it's the same Hebrew term used to describe the ark that the Lord commanded Noah to build. And this is just one of many points of contact between Noah and Moses. So I just want to run through a number of these points of contact between Noah and Moses very quickly. You'll remember from the, from the flood story that Noah was instructed to uh, distinguish between clean and unclean animals. Well, later in the Pentateuch, in Leviticus, Moses is going to lay out all the regulations that pertain to clean and unclean animals. When, when uh, Noah got off the ark, in, Exodus, in sorry, Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, he built an altar, and interestingly, the, the, the expression in, in Genesis 8, 20, Noah built an altar, is worded exactly the same way as Exodus, Exodus 17, verse 15, when Moses built an altar. I mean, the phrases, you look at the phrases in Hebrew, they are the same Hebrew terms in the same order, the only difference is the name. Noah in one case, Moses in the other. And then Noah offers a sacrifice, and the sacrifice creates a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And we'll read about sacrifices and pleasing aromas again over in the book of Leviticus. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord in Genesis 6-8. Moses is going to say to the Lord in Exodus 33, if now I have found grace or found favor in your eyes. Very similar expressions. In Genesis 6.22, when Noah had received the instructions for the building of the ark, he, we, we read that he did all the Lord commanded. We read the almost e exact same expression in Exodus chapter 40, verse 16, when they built the tabernacle under Moses, they did all that the Lord commanded. And then, uh, you'll remember that the Lord entered into a covenant with Noah, the so-called Noahic covenant. So also... The Lord is going to enter into a covenant with Moses. So here's what I would suggest. I would suggest that Moses himself saw all these similarities between Noah and his experience and himself, Moses, and his experience. And then he worded all these things similarly so that people would look at Noah and then they would look at Moses and they would say, isn't, isn't this interesting? Here's Noah by faith because he received commandments that he had to believe 
in order to commit himself to the project of building the ark, right? So by faith, Noah was saved through waters of judgment, after which um, God entered into covenant with him. We might say Noah was saved through the baptism of the world at the flood, and then God entered into covenant with him. Moses is now going to be placed in this ark and and then put into waters in which all the all his contemporaries, all the, the men his age in Israel are intended to die. And it's as though Moses is saved through this experience, this flood-like experience in an ark, in the same way that that uh, Noah was, not at this point for his faith, but, but because of that of his parents. And then later, uh, Moses is going to come through the baptism of the Red Sea. And on the other side of this passage through waters of judgment, in which the army of Pharaoh is going to be deluged, the Lord enters into covenant with Moses in the same way that he had entered into covenant with Noah. And this is building toward the one who would speak of his looming death as a baptism that he had to undergo. And after that baptism that Christ experienced on the cross under the floodwaters of God's wrath, he inaugurated the new covenant between God and himself in which we participate. So this is, a, I think, a profoundly significant statement that, that Moses' mother took for him an ark made of bulrushes, and it's even described the way that Noah's ark was. It's not the exact same Hebrew terminology, but the same process. She daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And there's irony here, because the king of Egypt has said, I want all the male children killed. I want all the male children of the Hebrews slaughtered, thrown into the Nile. But you can let the women live. And it's as though he thinks that he can use these women for his kingdom. And what he doesn't realize is that these women are devoted to Yahweh. And so... It's not just the midwives who are women who defy him, and it's not just Moses' mother. Now it's going to be Moses' sister, verse 4. Moses' sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And then, not only is it Hebrew women, but it's Pharaoh's own daughter, verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And then, here it is again, she saw the basket, the ark, among the reeds, and sent her servant women and took it. She took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. This woman, this daughter of Pharaoh, she knows the decree. She immediately recognizes who this what, where this child comes from. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She knows this child's life is forfeit. This child stands under the decree of death issued by her father, the Pharaoh. And in spite of that, she does what's right. She does what's good. She sees the way that things are. And somehow she knows. I think that most people would agree that, that there is, there's a sense that we all have of right and wrong, and this woman acts, she, she doesn't necessarily know Yahweh. She ha, I mean, the Ten Commandments haven't been stated yet, but she knows it's wrong to kill that child. She knows that. 
And so she pities this child, and she does what is good, not in direct obedience to God, because again, she hasn't even received a commandment, but she does what is good in defiance of the evil decreed by her wicked father. So Moses is saved again and again in his life by women doing feminine things. It's, 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 it's remarkable. And, and in this, what's happening? Well, I think what's happening here uh, can, can really be aptly summarized by Psalm 8, verse 2. Do you remember that statement? Out of the mouths, out of, the mouths of babies and infants, you have ordained praise because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. The Pharaoh is the Lord of the earth. He is the most powerful man on the planet probably at the time. And he's decreed that this child is to die. And the Lord is establishing his strength against his enemies through the birth of this child. As we've seen him do, seen him do across the book of Genesis. As the, Lord, as the Lord goes to work against the serpent and, and the purposes of the serpent through the births of these children. Pharaoh's daughter um, has found the child. And then look at the, bold, the boldness. Uh, this is probably Miriam. We, we learn later in Exodus 15 that Moses' older sister's name is Miriam. This is probably Miriam. Um, we also learn later that Moses, is, Moses has an older brother named Aaron. So verse 7, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, look at the boldness of this. I, I love the boldness evidenced probably by this relatively young girl. She could be between the ages of maybe 5 and 12. We don't, we're not told how old she is, and, and it's never specified how old Miriam is. But can you imagine this scene? She's, she's there at the riverbank watching her baby brother and, and probably does not intend for him to be found by the daughter of the Pharaoh. And then that happens, and how does she respond? She responds with a readiness. She, she discerns. She reads the situation. She can see that the daughter of Pharaoh has not just plunged the child into the water to kill it in accordance with her father's decree. And so she steps forward and speaks. His sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? I just love the pluck and the, the ingenuity and the readiness that she evidences there. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman, woman took the child and nursed him. And at this point, I really want you to think about how you see the world. I want you to think about how you read circumstances. Because I think that Moses' intention is for us to find delight in this. Moses means for us to see this happen and respond, look at how awesome God is. He not only saves Moses' life, he gets Moses restored to his mother, and then he even makes it so that Pharaoh's daughter pays his mother. This is awesome how the Lord works. And I'm afraid that some of us are inclined to see things like this. And instead of responding like that, we respond like this. Well, they're still enslaved. 
Well, it's not like they're going to get to raise the child themselves. Well, what about all the other male children of the Hebrews? Do you see the difference in those two responses? The difference in those two responses comes down to what do you choose to look at? What do you choose to look at? And what do you choose to set your heart upon? And I, I just want to plead with you and urge you to take your cues from the biblical authors. And, and if, we, if we take this scenario and compare it with what we're going to see, let's say, in Exodus 16 through 18 as the children of Israel are out in the wilderness, they're going to respond in that second way that I just illustrated. Because they've just been delivered from Egypt. They've just been liberated from slavery. They have magic bread. I mean, it's not real magic, you know, don't misunderstand me. It's miraculous bread that God causes to appear on the ground. And do you know what they do? They grumble. They complain. They say, well, we remember all the delicacies that we enjoyed back in Egypt. No, you didn't have delicacies in Egypt. What are you talking about? But that's how they talk. And then God opens up a rock and causes water to come flowing out of the rock for them. And, and they're ready to stone Moses with stones and return to Egypt. What's the difference? The difference is, what does your heart choose to focus upon? How do you see the world? When you see a child, do you think, oh, all the problems this is going to create for me? Or do you think, look at what God has done. Look at this miracle. Look at this beautiful life. So we want to be people. I want to urge you. We want to be people that when God saves our lives and when God creates a situation in which Moses the deliverer is going to be trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and when the house of Pharaoh is going to fund his early life. We want to be people who don't look at all the negatives that we could find about that situation. We want to be people who look at what God is doing and praise him and thank him for it. So it really comes down to this. Is your perception of the good and beautiful aligned with God's kingdom and God's purposes? If your perception of the good and the beautiful is aligned with God's kingdom and God's purposes, I think you'll read this situation the way that Moses' mother does, the way that Moses does. I think you'll be ready to celebrate what God does. If, you're, if your vision of the world, if your perception of the good and the beautiful are not aligned with God's kingdom and God's purposes, you will never be in position to do like what we confessed in our call to worship Moses did and consider all the the wealth of Egypt as nothing compared to the reproach of Christ. You'll never make that choice unless your perception of the good and beautiful is aligned with God's purposes. And then I would just invite you to ask yourself this question. Are you prepared to defy the seed of the serpent to obey God rather than men? That's what the midwives have done. They've defied Pharaoh, the seed of the serpent. And we talked in Exodus 1 about how there's so much, I, I think there are, there's similarity between the serpent and the way he tempts Eve and the Pharaoh calling these midwives to bring about the death of these children. And whereas Eve went along with the temptation, these midwives, they defy him and obey God rather than men. 
Moses' mother, Jochebed, we learn her name is in, in Exodus chapter 6. She defies the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh's command is kill the children. Moses' mother says no, not doing it. In defiance of the government order, not going along with the wicked program of the seed of the serpent. Even Pharaoh's own daughter recognizes this is the right thing to do. We want to honor this courage. We want to imitate the faith. Um, one more uh, thing to note here before we go, well, a couple more things to note here before we go on. Our New Testament reading today was uh, from Matthew chapter 2, and I think it's clear the way that the, the part played by Pharaoh here in Exodus is the part that will be played by Herod in the early life of the Lord Jesus. And the part played by Moses in this account is the part played by the Lord Jesus. And in all these situations, the Lord is establishing praise out of the mouths of babies and infants. Babies and infants who look small and weak and helpless. They are the weak things of the world, but the Lord is raising up a deliverer for his people. And then that brings us to verse 10. So... Exodus chapter 2, verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. I think this is like a formal adoption scenario. And then Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So she names him Moses because she drew him out of the water. The name Moses is Moshe, and the verb for draw him out of the water is Masha, and this is one of those remarkable things about the Bible. That particular verb occurs three times in the whole of the Old Testament. Once here, and then the other two times are Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22, which are the same text. Psalm 18 is basically the text of 2 Samuel 22. And in Psalm 18, um, David has just described how the Lord, he's describing how the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, and he describes the Lord going into action on his behalf, and it sounds like the theophany at Mount Sinai. It's like David is saying, when God saved me from Saul, he did for me the kind of thing he did at the Exodus from Egypt. And in Psalm 18, verse 15, Exodus 15, verse 8 is quoted, when David says, uh, you know, verse 14, he, the Lord sent out his arrows and scattered them, he flashed forth lightnings and routed them, then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. So it's like David is saying, when God saved me from Saul, he did for me what he did for Israel when he brought them through the Red Sea. And, and Psalm 18, verse 15, quotes Exodus 15, verse 8. And then David says this in verse 16 of Psalm 18. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. And it's the same verb used in Exodus 2, verse 10. And these are the only two places in the whole Bible. Well, Psalm 22 is the same passage. Only two places in the whole Bible that this verb is used. What is David doing? I think David is saying, the Lord saved me the way he saved Moses. And the Lord's going to enter into covenant with David the way he entered into covenant with Moses. So I think it's like David is saying, I'm the new Moses in this situation. And that, again, is building toward the one who will fulfill everything that Moses typified and everything that David typified. 
And that's the one that we worship, the one who has accomplished our salvation, the one to whom we're prepared to give all the glory. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, I hope what you're hearing from me, from me right now is that everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Everything in the Old Testament is building toward the way that Jesus would accomplish our salvation. And the Bible is awesome in the way that it, it points to him, and it, it, it's even better the way that it exalts Jesus at every step. So we get the birth of Moses in Exodus 2, 1 through 10. And that brings us to verses 11 through 15, where, um, again, I think we get um, things that are portending what will happen with Jesus. So look with me at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Did you catch that? He went out to his people. When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. Literally, the text says, he went out and to his brothers. He went out to his brothers. Do you see what this shows us? This shows us that Moses is not thinking of himself as an Egyptian. Moses is not thinking of himself as a member of the house of Pharaoh. How's Moses thinking of himself? Those are my people. Those are my brothers, the slaves, the nothings, the Hebrews. Those are my brothers. That's how Moses is thinking. Moses' identity has not been imposed upon him by the world. Moses is not, he's not accepting this idea that what makes me important is worldly status. He's rejecting the idea that what makes me significant is that I get to be trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Moses is not thinking like, what's important about me is what makes me look better or more wealthy or more learned or in some worldly way of measuring superior to these other people. That is not how Moses is thinking. Moses is thinking in biblical terms. And I think his thinking is like this. I'm a descendant of Abraham. Those are descendants of Abraham. I'm seed of the woman. Those are seed of the woman. Those Hebrews, those are my brothers. Those are my people. Moses has, got, Moses has gotten his identity from the scriptures. That's what has built Moses' Moses's own self-conception. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw that, even that phrase, he looked on in Hebrew, it's the very same as, and he saw. And he saw their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers. There's a footnote on the ESV on the word people, down the lower margin, brothers. That applies to the earlier instance of people in the verse. Verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Um, Moses is acting for the defense and vindication of God's people. Moses is identifying with God's people. Verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And, and in, in his speech in Acts 7, Stephen tells us that Moses was thinking 
that the, Hebrew, the Hebrews were going to recognize that the Lord was going to use him to deliver them. But the Hebrews were not thinking that way. And so they say, he, he, he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. So Moses goes out, according to Acts 7, which I think is, is a true and accurate understanding of this passage. Moses goes out, identifying with his people, thinking, surely they're going to recognize, the Lord has placed me in the house of Pharaoh, the Lord has educated me and equipped me to be the deliverer of his people, surely they're going to recognize that I can help them. And they don't recognize it. They respond to him the same way that Joseph's brothers responded to him, where they could not speak peacefully to him. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. And the way that Moses is responded to here is the same way that David will be responded to. David gets anointed as king over Israel, and, and, he, and he goes, and his brothers, his brothers think he's just come out to see the battle, and they can't stand it, that, that he just wants to see the fight. And then he's out there to kill Goliath and be the king of Israel. And this is the way, in Acts 7, Stephen will indict the Jews for responding to Jesus, who came as their deliverer and was rejected by them in the same way that Moses is here. So Moses comes to realize that the thing is known. And uh, verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. I, I just want to take you back to that. There, there, are, there are three instances of seeing here in verses 11 and 12. He saw their burdens. He looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He looked this way and that, and he saw no one, seeing no one. And I, I, I just want to invite you to, to consider the question, do you see? Do you see? Do you see the way that things are? Do you see the way the Bible intends to, to, to teach us to see? And if you ask me, well, what, what does that look like? What does that, what does that mean today for us now and here? Here's what it comes down to. Life's about God. Life's for Christ. Life is for the Great Commission. Life is about Jesus building his church. Life is about us hungering and thirsting for righteousness and, and doing everything that we can to be used of the Lord Jesus. As Paul says in Acts 20, counting our own lives as nothing, have no importance whatsoever, that, that we might do what he has called us to do. So we have the, uh, this deliverance that Moses accomplishes in an anticipatory way. And, and then he's rejected. And then this brings us to verses 16 through 20, where Moses meets his wife by a well. Um, so let, let me just read through these verses here. Um, Exodus chapter 2, verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. There, there's a previous figure in the Old Testament who had um, gone down into Egypt and married the daughter of a foreign priest. And I think that Moses means for us to think of Joseph marrying the daughter of um, uh, Potiphar, the, the priest there in Egypt. I think Moses wants us to align the way Moses and Joseph. I mean, 
Moses has just been rejected the way that Joseph was rejected, and now Moses is marrying a foreign, foreign priest. And then, um, so, th- so this priest of Midian has seven daughters. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove, drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And we read earlier in, in the service, Genesis 29, of how, of how Jacob, who was fleeing from his brother Esau, who was trying to kill him. And, and I think it's, it's natural to see the similarity between Jacob and Moses, who is fleeing from the Pharaoh, who is trying to kill him. And, you know, both men arrive at a well, and they there both meet their wives. And that had happened before. Abraham's servant in Genesis 24 goes to find a wife for Isaac, and he meets Rebekah at a well. Why is this significant? Well, in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus is going to be passing through uh, Samaria in John 4, and he's going to sit down by a well, and this Samaritan woman is going to come out, and they're going to have a conversation, and she's going to go from asking if he's a prophet to, a- to asking if he's greater than Jacob to asking if he is not the Christ and, and, and realizing, confessing him as the Christ. And I think that in John 4, John means for his audience to think of these earlier meetings of a, a man, of his wife at, at a well, and, and it's suggestive that uh, we, we Gentiles are part of this bride of Christ that, that realizes, we, we realize our existence in fulfillment of passages like this in the Old Testament. So just to read on here, um, verse 16, when they came home to their father Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that we may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. And here again we have reminiscence of Joseph. You'll remember Joseph gave his sons Manasseh and Ephraim names that were, that were religiously significant to him. God has made me forget the trouble that I had in my father's house. And God has made me fruitful in a foreign land. And now Moses is saying, he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the naming of Gershom is really reminiscent of the naming of Joseph's sons. Now, as we consider Moses meeting his wife by a well, I just want you, I want to invite you to consider the magnitude of being part of the bride of Christ, the glory of this. And this is not a glory that arises from who we are. This is a glory that arises from the mercy that God has lavished upon us. We, are, we have the privilege of experiencing the new covenant and living for Christ in this world. Christ the King who's going to come and reign over all the earth. And, and we are like the, the baby Moses. We, we're so seemingly insignificant, so seemingly powerless to help ourselves, so seemingly incapable of doing anything for God. And we're talking about Moses that was that little baby in an ark. Moses, who would write the first five books of the Bible. Moses, who would be the mediator of the covenant between God and his people. 
I mean, who is mightier than Moses in, in, in this time? No one saw more glory of God than Moses. And we get to be those who play this kind of part. I mean, the, the role of Moses is fulfilled in Christ, obviously. But we get to be like Moses, used of the Lord to accomplish his purposes. That brings us to verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. This links back to chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This guy set himself to kill the male children of the Hebrews. And we don't read of him successfully exterminating a single one of them. There were probably male children of the Hebrews who died. I don't, we don't, but the text doesn't tell us that. The text only tells us of his death, this king's death. And that puts me in mind of Psalm 2, where at the end of the psalm, uh, the New Testament tells us David wrote that psalm, and David says, in response to the Lord's decree, the 2 Samuel 7 decree concerning the king from David's line, and David says, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice before him with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in the way. You can count on it. If you are an enemy of God, if you're somebody here this morning and you think, I don't need Jesus, I don't need Christianity, I don't need to bow the knee to some king who got himself crucified and these people claim he's reign, he reigns, he was risen, I don't need that. If that's your attitude, the Bible is giving you fair warning. The Bible is telling you, you will be destroyed. And you may think it's rude or unkind or something like that for me to say these things to you. I would say this is the mercy and kindness and love of God extending to you a fair warning of your destruction that is inevitable. The only way for you to avoid it is for you to turn. The only way for you to avoid the wrath of King Jesus is for you to recognize, I cannot escape him. I cannot evade him. I cannot somehow outlive him. There is nowhere I can go to hide from him. The only thing I can do is submit to him. And we would plead with you to get right with him. We would plead with you to bow the knee to the king. He will, he will come. We can count on it. The end of this passage is just gloriously beautiful. In the rest of Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, we read here that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And then in verses 24 and 25, it's wonderful how this is stated. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. So verse 24, God heard their groaning. I know, I know only a little bit about what is going on in some of the lives of the people in this congregation. Um, I know there's groaning. And this verse tells us that God hears the groaning of his people. And so I want to say to you, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't lose, don't lose heart. Don't come to a place where you think that your groaning is not heard. God hears it. God heard their groaning, 
And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This, these, these statements link up with Exodus 1, verse 7, that we looked at when we were in Exodus 1, where the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, so we get, we get Genesis 1, 28 at the beginning of Exodus 1. And now we get Genesis 12, 1 through 3, which echoes all through the book of Genesis here in Exodus 2, 24, where God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And then we've seen how uh, Moses' mother, in verse 2, she saw that he was good. And we've seen how the daughter of Pharaoh, in verses 5 and 6, she saw the, basket, the, the ark, and then she saw the child. And then we've seen how Moses... He went out and he saw the burdens of his people. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And now, in Exodus 2, 25, God saw the people of Israel. God sees. God knows. I don't know everything you're going through. God knows. I don't know everything you're going to go through. God knows. God's going to see every bit of it. And he'll never be absent. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That, that feels like a little awkward, it feels a little, a little bit of an awkward way to end a statement, but I think that just makes it all the more beautiful, the way it communicates the intimacy between God and the experience of his people. I think the, the, the big idea here from Exodus 2, 24 and 25, where God heard God remembered, God saw, and God knew. The big idea is you can trust him. You can trust him. He knows. You can trust him. He sees. You can trust him. He'll keep his covenant. You can trust him. Christ has come. He's building his church. We get to be part of it. Whatever it is, that your particular contribution to it, it might be, it's part of the grand task. Whether that means that you're studying or serving or preparing or praying or waiting or hoping or sharing the gospel or, or working hard to be growing, reading, waiting, preaching, baptizing, communing, it's all for him. To live is Christ because we trust him. He's worthy of our trust. Let's pray together. Father, we don't deserve to worship a God like you. You are more pure than we can begin to conceive. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You never change. You are infinite in glory and every perfection. And so, Lord, we come and we open our hands to you and we want to join with your people across time and through space in saying, who is like you, O oh Lord?
glorious in power, infinite in worth. Salvation belongs to you. And we give you all the glory. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to see the way that you mean for us to see. We pray that you would shape our identity according to what you teach in the scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us how you work in the world and cause us to rejoice in being the weak things, in being the babies and infants that you will use to silence the enemy and the avenger. Lord, we love you, and we want to take up our crosses and follow the Lord Jesus. Amen.